No one way works. It will take all of us shoving at the thing from all sides to bring it down. You're listening to Navara FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. Those lines are from the poet Diane de Prima in her revolutionary letter number nine, and perhaps the sharpest and most succinct statement on political organising that I know. De Prima died in October of last year, and if you're not familiar with her work, I really recommend finding some of it and reading it, or listening to her talk about her life as a woman poet and a mother among the beats. But it's not de Prima we're talking about today, although maybe one day we should do a read-through of the revolutionary letters for a special hour of radio. But those lines form up the epigram for one of the chapters in a new book on political organisation, neither vertical nor horizontal, with whose author I am speaking today. My name is Rodrigo Nunes. I'm currently speaking from Australia, where I happen to be a um, COVID refugee from Brazil. But usually I'd be speaking from Brazil if, assuming Brazil will continue to exist in the future. In a way, political organisation has never been far from our discussions here on Navarra over the past 10 years. If you delve way back into our archive, you can hear me argue with Aaron over electoralism, the political importance of workplace organising, or where the limits of street-based assemblies might be, or the history of mass parties, and so on and so on and so on. And all of these are questions of organisation, about how and who organises and for what. Questions about which way works. And our focus on those questions isn't accidental. It reflects the way in which the movement over the past decade or so has pushed against the limits of its organisational forms and found itself bouncing around between them, between the claimed horizontalism of anarchist-inspired movements from climate camp to Occupy and the verticalism of the turn to the parties or the attempts to resurrect the Leninist parties of old. Anyone who has participated in arguments around that knows how readily they devolve into cliché, into accusation and mutual recrimination and claims to have the one weird trick to solve the problem of politics. Well, we don't believe in one weird tricks and neither does Rodrigo. And the book is full of startlingly fresh insights and ways of dissolving the old clichés in an effort to teach its readers how to think honestly and therefore usefully about organisation. You know, I can start by asking you a little bit about your own political background, actually, which I think probably informs the book. I mean, obviously, the book sort of responds to the whole cycle of struggles that have taken place over the past decade. I was just wondering what your own background is. Mm. Um, well, as as I think I, I sort of um, uh, indicate at the start of the book in, in the introduction a little bit, um, I'm actually coming from, I'm, a, I'm a, a remnant from an earlier cycle of struggles. Uh, I was uh, perhaps a late arrival in the, in the anti-globalization cycle. But uh, yeah, that was, I mean, even before that, I had a background in uh, student politics and uh, in community organizing in Brazil. But then the big boom for me politically happened when, as I usually tell the story, the um, anti-globalization circus moved into my backyard because I was living in Porto Alegre at the time um, when the World Social Forum happened. So I was involved in the organization of the first few editions. That was great because it meant when I moved to London to do my PhD uh, a couple of years later, uh, I'd already met a bunch of comrades in Europe, uh, in the UK and in in the continent as well. And then there in in London, I was involved in um, the kinds of things that people were doing uh, at at the time, still towards the tail end of the the anti-globalization cycle. Um, But then in 2006, I worked as a labor organizer in the Justice for Cleaners campaign, which was the Unite campaign that kind of um, sparked the whole 
cleaner organizing thing in London. So that was before the campaign at SOAS, which is the one that people usually remember. Then before some of the workers that we'd organized in uh, our campaign actually left the union and started their own campaign called uh, Cleaners for Justice, which was a brilliant um, detournement of the, the original uh, campaign name. And then back in Brazil, I did some more, uh, a little bit more community organizing around the World Cup. And then obviously was involved in the 2013 protests. But then sadly, I got a job and it became much harder to be involved in things. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> also, also, Brazil hasn't helped since, to be <laughs> <Yeah>. honest. <laughs> well, that gives us a nice end, actually, to... to kind of the question of organizing an organization, which in some ways is quite an expansive term for you, because you know, so, so there's a lot of people on the left who would agree that organization matters, you know, to the point that it, it's, it's almost kind of a reflex, right? So that people, you know, when they're looking to talk about organization, what they're looking for is a kind of instruction manual on how to do it in a particular circumstance, or they treat it as a sort of you know, like it's a magic ingredient that you need to sprinkle into the movement and then and then everything will be all right. <laughs> so why don't you give us, why don't we jump in by saying, by, by exploring the term a little bit and maybe exploring a little bit about why, why specifically, so because the book is not, you know, it's not a how-to guide and you say, you know, there are, there are lots of these around, you know, there's the Jane McAlevey thing, which I think is probably the most famous at the moment uh, and there are others as well. So maybe we can start with like why thinking about organization is important. The first reason is you said, like most people would agree uh, and, and many people would use, uh, would treat organization as like this magical ingredient that if you could only sprinkle it on things, things would turn out fine. Um, but then usually people also find it very hard to define what exactly that ingredient is or what it would do. But I guess the main difference between what I've tried to do here and um, what people like Jane McAlevey or, um, you know, Jonathan Smucker with um, his uh, hegemony, how to, I guess the main difference is, yes, many people recognize the importance of organization. At the same time, it's also... Um, as much as it is like this magical ingredient, ingredient for lots of people, it's almost a, a taboo word for lots of other people in the same movements. So a book about organizing would be, is a book for people who already, who are already sympathetic to the idea of organizing. Um, but there are lots of people who uh, still need to be convinced that organizing or that organization is necessary. And a lot of the work that I was trying to do here was in that direction, was trying to get to those people to, to convince those people. I remember this um, occasion in, um, in New York a few years ago when um, I was participating in an event and I was talking about some of the stuff that ended up in the book. And a woman asked me in the uh, debate afterwards, well, how is what you're saying different from um, the, the vanguard that imparts consciousness from the outside to the masses? And I really should have taken her name down because that moment was so useful for me because it made me realize how powerful this trope is of the vanguard that imparts consciousness from the outside and how much for many people that's the last thing you you want to be and so anything that um that smacks of that anything that's that could be construed as being like that is rejected but then the trope is so vague and the the burden of associations that come with it is so broad and diffuse that anything can fall under that trope and it's actually a really interesting trope because it's um it's kind of like 
it's the caricature of the caricature of what organizing is in the sense that what you're criticizing is a kind of practice that only people who have no idea of what uh, organizing is would do. One of the points of writing the book was to say, well, instead of looking at this, um, you know, instead of thinking of this trope, usually of the, the Trotskyist party that people like the, the, the horrible Trotskyist party that people imagine in their heads, why don't you look instead at the, uh, at the Black Panthers? Because that's organizing. Why don't you look at liberation theology? Because that was organizing. Um, so there is a much bigger um, breadth of cases than people will normally allow. Well, at the same time, a lot of uh, what people reject, one, one thing that's curious in, um, among both people who reject the idea of organizing or of organization per se, or who are very afraid of that idea, and the people who will say, yes, we need organization when they mean we need a party, is that both sides of that discussion actually agree on the idea that organization and party are pretty much synonymous with one another. And one of the things that I wanted to do with this book was to break that association and say, actually, no, there's a much broader uh, range of things that can be described as association. In fact, the, the move that I try to make is exactly in the opposite direction. Instead of thinking that organization is rare, let's do things the other way around and, and think actually organization is everywhere. So it's never a matter of whether you, whether you do it or you don't do it. It's a matter of how you do it because you're doing it anyway. If you're doing anything, you're already doing something that's organized in its own way. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, th I think, you know, it's one of the most provocative moments, I think, early in the book where you say, you know, to be, you know, to be connected is already to be organized. Anything that involves connection, which is, you know, pretty much any human activity uh, <laughs> at all, uh, it, it, you know, involves a form of organization. You know, I, I suppose you could make objections to this. You could say, you know, well, you know, that, that may be true, but you've expanded the category to this point where, where it's very hard to talk about like specific forms of political organization. You know, I understand where that objection is coming from. I suppose I, I would want to kind of skip that and, and, and move forward in some ways and say, okay, let's accept this. Let's take this as, as our premise and then think about, um, you know, what this tells us about these kind of very specific and kind of historically contingent and apparently kind of endlessly repeated forms um, uh, of political organization on the left. Um, and maybe the way into to talking about this, about that is to talk about, you know, your work in this book on left melancholia, as you say, people will think about okay, our, you know, our two chief forms of you know, left organization are either effectively the classic revolutionary party, um, which is aimed, you know, eventually one way or another at insurrection, or the kind of post '68 movements that are in some ways kind of constructed, you know, in the antithesis of. Uh, this kind of classic revolutionary party. And you take this up and, and talk about a kind of uh, a double melancholy that we can we can come on to. But let's talk about, um, maybe you can explain to listeners because they won't necessarily be familiar with it, this this argument around left melancholia. Yeah, well, the the expression has been around, the, the term left melancholia has been around for some time since um, Walter Benjamin. And actually, one of the things that I point out is that people, it's become something that it actually seems quite different from what um, Benjamin met, met, meant in the first place. Basically, my, my idea of um, speaking of two uh, melancholias rather than just one, rather than just assuming there is uh, one, as most people tend to do, came really from the, um, you know, the, the juxtaposition that I make in the book between uh, one text by Wendy Brown and another one by Jody Dean is actually how I came to, to this realization, because it's really interesting how the two mirror each other. And it occurred to me, actually, we don't have to choose which one is the right one. Both of them are right. And the problem is actually 
precisely these two melancholias that mirror one another, which I associate with uh, two dates, 1917, which would take us back to the idea of the Revolutionary Party and um, organizing for insurrection and taking over the state apparatus and then using the state apparatus to bring about social transformation. And what came to be known as 1968, which in itself is is a bit curious because actually for lots of people, you know, there were lots of Maoists in, in 1968 who whose model was still the Revolutionary Party, even though there weren't any revolutionary parties that they saw at the time as being up to, to that task. But eventually, over time, particularly, I think precisely as this structure of this mirroring structure of two melancholias that blame one another for their lost objects set in in the 1980s, 1968 came to be defined as being like this open-ended, libertarian, bottom-up, um, movement-oriented organizing whose focus wasn't necessarily in taking the state apparatus, but it was much more about transforming social relations, um, et cetera, et cetera. And what I want to do, so this has meant for all practical, practical purposes, this has meant that for the, la the last four decades, the, the left has only ever played with either one or the other half of the deck. You know, you, you never have, you're never playing with the whole deck of options. You're either choosing one half or, or the other. And I wanted to bring, to make it possible, I wanted to build an argument that made it possible to bring those two halves of the deck back together around the idea that, well, first of all, maybe we've had enough experience uh, by now with both of those options to say that both have failed. Um, I think if there's one thing we can say about pretty much anything in the history of the left is that it has failed. That's not necessarily, you know, I don't, I don't mean to say that we can't, uh, we haven't learned or we couldn't learn anything from it. But if the goal was to bring about the end of capitalism, then by and capitalism still around, then by definition, everything has failed. And I, I think this is, this is one of the things that changed in the last decade. I think people became a lot more aware of the fact that, well, 1968 wasn't just this, uh, this hope that was interrupted, uh, that was nipped in the bud, but actually a lot of those things that came to be associated with 1968, they have been tried and they didn't work. While we also know that the old, um, the old model, perhaps it worked in, in some, both of them have worked in, in some ways and not in others, but um, they have also brought about things that were quite different than what they were um, supposed to produce in in the first place. So maybe we should try and and put those two halves back together and start playing with the full deck again. There's a term I, I really like actually that you that you use. I, I don't know you know whether it's your invention or not. That you talk of a kind of symmetrical schismogenesis, um, which is a bit of a mouthful, but uh, you know, the, but the sense that these two parts um, of the left are in this are locked in this kind of you know, cycle that reproduces each other, right? You know, on the one hand, you know, oh, you've abandoned revolutionary politics. You know, on the other hand, well, you know, <laughs> the history of actually existing socialism, not great. And there are lots of things like we can pick up out of this. And you know, one of the things I think that, that you argue very well is that the things that come to, you know, the, the side of the left, I'm, I'm probably more inclined to, or the side of this argument I'm probably more inclined to, um, will often say, oh, well, you know, uh, this would work you know, if only capitalism hadn't gotten in the way. 
but that's a constitutive weakness, right? If 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 the project can't work while capitalism exists, then then it can't work. Yeah. Um. So 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 I mean, I suppose the other side of it is is that you know the third date is 1989, right? Like it's it's after 89 that these two arguments really set into place and have characterized the left um, uh, uh, since then. I think you're right to say that that kind of post 2011. Things change. I mean, you know, people I met who who were involved in climate camp um, then ended up, you know, going into the Labour Party to be kind of staffers and, and try and work that project there. So there's obviously kind of a, a, a degree of openness. And maybe that's just, you know, the way in which history works is that once you're a little bit further away from these arguments, then then they, they cease to have the kind of dogmatic purchase that 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 we do. But so so the, the couple there's a couple of things I want to take out of here because you know the, the the way that this book book works is a kind of very classically logical one, right? That you have a kind of past destruence where you're sort of taking apart um, these arguments, and then kind of past construence where you're kind of putting together something new, and that one requires the other. So I want to, you know, like it, it, you know, if people wondering why we're not talking about like how to build an organization or, or whatever. It's because like part of building the organization, I think, is pulling these things apart and kind of dissolving them you know, because they are obstacles. So there are a couple of things that come out of this conversation that I think are important. Like one is the question of like, you know, how we develop reflexive accounts. Because one of the problems with both of these positions, the, the 1917 or the 68 Melancholias, is that they have a kind of external other, you know, who is to blame rather than there being kind of account of the internal, you know, the problem of the internal dynamic or the problem of the kind of the, the strategy that you've undertaken. And I suppose the other part of it, which, you know, comes from the way that the kind of 1917 melancholics talk about things is, you know, the question of ends, because I suppose it's, it's something that's not necessarily like completely articulated in, in, in the beginning of your book, but, you know, I, you know, we're not talking about organization in a completely abstract way. We're talking about left organization. And so one of the things that happens with, you know, when we come to talking about organization is that people concentrate, oh, well, you know, we have this disagreement over the kind of end to which we're we're moving that, you know, that, that, oh, you're a Trotskyist or you're a, an anarchist, you're a social democrat, et cetera, et cetera. And so what role do the, does the question of ends play for you? Well, in a way, a lot of the work that I'm doing is negative in the way that it, precisely I'm trying to break through these, um, these automatisms and received ideas and cliches and, um, you know, these automatic associations that people have around um, these ideas. I'm trying to do this by proposing a different account and saying, well, it's not necessary that um, things should be framed in, in this way. But at the same time, what's different in what I'm trying to do from a, a, a more, um, from a book that's directly about organizing, say usually those books they are presenting a particular approach or a, partic a particular strategy or a particular method of organizing. And what I was trying to do was to present the, to, to build a framework that was um, broad enough and, um, and capacious enough that um, different positions could find different political positions and different strategies, different approaches, etc., could find a place there. So in in a way, what I'm trying to say is, look, everything could potentially be valid. Everything you you would you think should be done could potentially be valid, provided A you choosing to do it and you choosing the way to do it, you choosing the, the organization in order to do it, that's adequate to what you set out to do rather than just you choosing it on the grounds that this is the identity you want to impress other people on the left with. Uh, so you're choosing it precisely with a goal in mind rather than just to reiterate uh, an identity. And on, on the other hand, uh, that you're doing it, that you, you're choosing what you're doing and the way you're doing it and the moment, uh, perhaps above all the moment in which you're doing it, with reference to what other people are doing it. So you're playing, you're playing a collective game with people that you don't necessarily agree with. 
um, but that you understand as being on your side and you're trying to adapt to what they are doing. So perhaps the most speculative thing in, in the book would be the hope that from people acting in that way, for people from pursuing ends that are not quite the same, but in a way that uh, is aware of what other people are doing and aware of broader common goals rather than just, you know, um, what, what will make me look more like the vanguard of the, the revolution, that the result of people acting in, in that way is something that is a strategy that it's like a, a an emergent strategy let's say that um takes us in a qualitative qualitatively different direction so i'm trying to build a framework in which different ends could fit obviously in practice that's obviously not all ends can can fit because at the end of the day like ultimately i'm trying to build a framework in which um, reformers could pursue revolution and revolutionary could pursue reforms. But everyone is pushing in a direction that takes us away from where we are. Obviously, lots of people who would see uh, themselves as being in the left are not necessarily trying to get too far from where we are today. So obviously, there wouldn't be much... Um, in my ideal uh, scenario, there wouldn't be much place for them in this framework. But, you know, these, these are things that are also out there in the world and you have to find ways of dealing with them. Yeah, yeah. So I think any kind of historically informed leftist kind of grapples with the concept of revolution. And one of the things you're doing is picking up a kind of, you know, there's not very much about it that gets done in the Anglophone world, but the kind of conceptual history um, of revolution, which is a kind of Reinhardt Kosalek thing, and there's like there's a big there's a big literature about it, but it's it's not primarily kind of Anglophone. I think any of us who inherit the Marxist tradition have a slight twinge at the back of the head where you go, okay, well, like, look, lots of people who preceded me had a, a very very teleological conception of the way in which history was going to unfold. I think you write about um, Bernstein, for instance, who you know rejects a kind of teleological notion uh, of you know the unfolding of revolution, and then constructs for himself again a kind of, of teleological notion of reform. Right. So the idea that history is going to you know like unfold along its kind of railway track, and so like lots of the way that our predecessors have wrote and thought about revolution has been really grounded in these ideas about history. You know these kind of very you know things that look kind of less obviously true now than they might have done, say, 100, 150 years ago. And so, you know, on the one hand, there, there is like just this question of how durable the concept of progress in any sense is, partly because, I, you know, there is increasingly, I think, quite a convincing rhetorical move on the right to say, oh, well, actually, we need to go back to Plato, Polybius, Philo, you know, these people who say, uh, well, actually, the, the progress of history is actually cyclical, right? You get these dem democracies and they degenerate into tyrannies or, or, or into oligarchies, into, you know, whatever. There, there is a cycle in which endlessly repeats and, and actually, you know, so stop, <laughs> stop thinking you're going to get um, the, the, the kind of change that you think, um, it, you know, might be at hand. You know, with that in mind, I wonder. I wonder whether it's whether the concept of revolution, which is something that has animated our predecessors, people you know who came before us in in the same movements, really, really animated them, for which people gave their lives. And um, whether it's still something that has purchase uh, and and you know central importance for us today. Um, yeah, um, I mean, there's there's a lot to be said about that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> but two things I was I was trying to do. Well, three things. Uh, on on the one hand, point out like the way the ways in which the imminent critique of the idea of uh, revolution that developed from within the revolutionary uh, tradition, particularly within 
uh, Marxism and other stuff that you could relate to Marxism in different ways, like post-structuralism, but also um, the anarchist tradition. The ways in which that imminent critique of, of the idea of revolution points us in the direction of a concept that, you know, we haven't really um, developed that's radically different from the one that we're uh, inherited, that's separated from uh, any notion of uh, teleology and uh, historical determinism, which makes it contingent, i.e., you know, this, these big changes that we hope for, they could happen or they could not happen. And that is a strong argument for organizing, because precisely if they are contingent, then because one of the things uh, that people grappled in within the, the, the tradition with this very strong teleological deterministic notion of revolution was precisely, well, hang on a second, if it's going to happen anyway, why do we what, what's all the fuss uh, about organizing and building structures etc so yeah in in the direction of something that's uh contingent uh of something that doesn't suppose any uh necessary subject um so there there isn't like this one site from where we must expect uh the the revolutionary subject to emerge um, but actually, and historically, revolution has always been uh, a matter. N no revolution, no actually existing revolution ever corresponded to that model of, uh, you know, no revolution was ever done by the people who were supposed to be the subjects of revolution. It was always way more complicated than that. And it was always a composition of different agents. And finally, the the idea that instead of um, instead of conceiving it as like this form giving act where a, a revolutionary subject just remakes the world from from outside of, or from above, as it were, as if the as if it weren't inside the world, it weren't part of the world, and the world as if the world were just some inert matter that you could do anything uh, with. Instead of that, an idea of uh, revolution that always involves subjects of revolution that are transforming a world that in itself is complex and that they are transforming from within. So that was the first thing. The second thing was to point out the ways in which the word has become ubiquitous at the same time as it became unthinkable. And, the, you know, people have continued to use uh, the word revolution to describe lots of different things um, that in the past would at best be considered as elements of a revolution, but not a revolution uh, per se. And the word has become ubiquitous at the same time as the thing itself became unthinkable. And towards the end, I tried to, I tried to um, point in the direction of what this other uh, concept could be that would take into consideration those three transformations that I was uh, pointing out from from uh, historical determinism to contingency, from the idea that there is a privileged revolutionary subject to the idea that actually any revolution or any political transformation is a composition of different uh, subjects and the, the idea of um, complexity. And I propose that maybe we should, instead of instead of posing the relation between the two terms in the way that was traditional in the, the Marxist tradition, and that's very heavily criticized nowadays by uh, communization theory, where traditionally you would think, well, there is a revolution and there is a period of, of transition that's initiated by the revolution and which supposes a transitional 
society that's presided over by a transitional state, we invert the relation between the two terms. And since the word transition is everywhere now, because we have a very short window window of time in which to transition out of a, a carbon economy, that we think revolution is part of transition rather than the other the other way around. So this makes the question of both revolution and reform internal to a bigger question, which is the question of transition and the question of how you compose a diverse collective force that's capable in um, by acting in a complex world and in which there are no guarantees, in which history is not necessarily on our side, how how we can compose that collective force that could bring about a transition, not only away from the carbon economy, but obviously away from capitalism as well. Mm-hmm. There's something, you know, an argument you make about, you, so you're thinking about uh, Hart and Negri, who are, you know, for, for listeners who don't know, kind of really the sort of chief theorists of the movement, you know, really the auto-globalization movement, um, uh, you know, hugely, hugely important in that sense, theorists of the multitude, uh, uh, as well as, you know, someone like John Holloway. So, so the assumption is, or the, the kind of implicit argument is that there are these kind of little, or these kind of, you know, minor acts of political change, local acts of political change that become kind of aggregative, you know, and then hopefully the, the implicit argument is that they they build a kind of mass and then then a kind of global transformation takes place. And, and you know, and I think you know it's not uncommon now to see the to to be able to grasp the limitations of, of this. I think it's you know uh, obvious in some ways. Um, it, but it, what's interesting to me is that that this you know we, we we end up returning to the question of the political at the end of the you know like you can do all the aggregative acts that you want but like actually the question of kind of engagement in the political sphere um and the question of the engagement in 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 politics you know it can't be you know you can't go around it you can't go over it there doesn't seem to be any way to sort of um uh, supersede it mm. in, in that sense and i think it's kind of an important important lesson that comes out of that movement um your approach to to thinking about the question of the political is ecological. Um, I, I'm not sure that the use of ecological in that sense will necessarily be familiar. So maybe you should tell us what it means to think ecologically mm. um, in a political sense. Well, this idea, I'm, I'm specifically thinking about um, organization ecologically um, and this idea of um, speaking of, um, you know, a, an ecology of of organizations or an ecology of movements, um, a media ecology or an ecology of um, media outlets, etc. This has really caught on in in the last ten years or even less. Um, I guess maybe I was in in my first book organization of the organization list i was one of the people who contributed to to that term becoming more popular but it's also like a native category that's everywhere and we can speculate as to why that is it's probably my guess is that one of the things that really leads people in the direction of thinking ecologically is the our daily experience on social media because social media really gives you and and the fact that everyone or more and more people nowadays are familiar with like graph visualizations of social media etc that really makes it visible to to people on a daily basis what is connected to what uh, what are the different clusters that talk to one another, etc. So um, so my idea of uh, ecology is is coming, a lot of it is coming from that and it's coming from something that's uh, daily, part of everyone's daily experiences nowadays. Um, at the same time, it has to do with what we were talking about earlier, um, the, the idea that instead of conceiving organization as something rare, we should 
do the opposite move and consider it as being everywhere. Like these, the fact that some people are talking to one another and not to all these other people, or the fact that um, you know the say the the media content that is produced here circulates in a certain sphere and occasionally it might get out of this sphere or this bubble and you can you can tell what the connection was that made that travel elsewhere etc etc this in itself is already organization these relatively constant relations the relatively constant connection of different elements and the fact that these elements you know you have different people or organizations um affinity groups whatever um that are dedicating some of their time some of their effort to to doing things that are in communication of, with what these other people out there are doing that is already a an incipient form of organization so the first thing about uh, conceiving organization ecologically is uh, is the idea that organization comes in all shapes and forms and degrees so you have that kind of uh, organization which describes only a kind of constant connection that exists in social media or that exists in the real world but you know this can go all the way to like formal organizations with a leadership uh, structure and like uh, formalized procedures for selecting the leadership or for making decisions etc etc so that would be the first idea that uh, it comes in all shapes forms and degrees the second thing is there's always more than one organization. Traditionally, the the question of organization was conceived as having to do with what kind of organization should we have. So it assumed that there should be one organizational form or that there should be eventually that there should be one organization under whose umbrella all different organizational forms were. And the idea here is organization always exi exists in, a, in an ecology, an ecology that involves different organizations of different kinds and different degrees, and also lots of unaffiliated people who, um, who don't belong to uh, different organizations, but belong to what the Italians in the 70s would call the area of the movement and they they might be more internal or more external to the area but they are people who are also um mobilizable uh mobilized or mobilizable by by this organizational ecology now there's a number of things uh that i think we can um a number of uh, of consequences that we can take from those ideas. I, perhaps the most important of which is about the 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 complementarity of different organizational forms, different kinds of organizations, different kinds of political action, or you know different different kinds of um, activity. You know people who do media, people who do legal support, people who do medical aid, uh, people who do fundraising, uh, etc. The way in which uh, all these things uh, can and should complement one another, um, which means that once you move away from thinking the question of organization is having to do with one organization and instead you think about as having to do with an ecology, then the question becomes not what is the organization that we should have or what is the organizational form that we should have, but how do we make the most out of the ecology that 
we have. So how do we make it more complementary? How do we act in, in such a way that both makes the most out of the resources uh, that we have and also doesn't damage the, the relations that we have with, um, with one another? I mean, obviously, you know, we always, we always have a tendency to think that we're not being normative and all we're saying is just common sense. I'm sure other people will think that I'm being way more normative than I, than I say I am being. But I try to, to convince people in the book that the only normative thing in, in the book is think ecologically, i.e. think always in terms of the, the ecology within which you're acting rather than just your, your project or your idea of uh, your theory of change, etc. Right. And uh, I mean, actually, like, so this is actually very difficult in some ways, right? Because, you know, the, you know, the tradition on the left is to assume that, you know, you are in one, you're in competition with every other organization on the left. So, um, you know, one, you know, member lost to you and, you know, joining another party or another organization is destructive to your goals, right? Rather than, um, you know, rather than, 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 you know, something that can be seen, you know, as a, as a positive. The habit of people who are involved in politics is to derive some kind of normative prescription um, from arguments like this, right? And so, I mean, it, in a sense, it's great, right? Because you, like, actually, you can't create ecologies. So you can't take, you know, there's no, there's no, you can't take a normative prescription, like go away and try to create an ecology. Um, you know, the prescription can only be at the level um, of thought and perhaps actually also at the level of kind of intellectual freedom. So one of the things, um, and I think we're moving like quite strongly into the kind of past constituents of the book here, um, is, is, you know, so you said, very, you know, you mentioned it earlier, but, but one of the most provocative things, I think, towards the end of the book, you say is, you know, look, everything has failed. And this actually isn't as, as kind of miserable a thing as it might otherwise be, because it offers you a degree of freedom um, and, and a degree of, of, you know, latitude in, in what you choose to do. Um, so you talk about you know, we're in an era of mass movements without mass organizations. And um, we're in an era of kind of, you know, one of the things that has emerged over the course of the past decade is this kind of platform politics. The things that will be most familiar, I think, to our audience will be something like Extinction Rebellion or UK Uncut, where there is this kind of you know, central organizational platform, but but sort of the ability to kind of autonomously um, um, create you know, political actions or you know on on that basis and obviously like we all know that they're they're limited right like and one of the freedoms that we have if we're thinking ecologically is to say okay well then they don't have to be everything um so tell me let's let's start with that right then you know everything has failed why is that a useful starting point for us i think the first way in which it's useful is um it gets us away from from both uh the the melancholia we were discussing earlier, or the two melancholias we were discussing earlier, and the endless uh, relitigation of how things failed and why and whose fault it was. I think it's for the reasons that I was saying earlier, you know, if we assume the goal as having been to bring about the end of capitalism it's pretty safe to say <laughs> we have failed in in everything we have tried um the possibilities that come from that are twofold one is um obviously you can learn from all those failures you precisely if you don't um if you don't treat each failure as being just you know the people in 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 the left for some reason tend quite often to think in terms of types so you you see so you know people see say Syriza and immediately immediately they'll say oh yeah the euro communists euro communism can't work because x and then the result is you learn absolutely nothing from the fact that Syriza failed because you already knew the answer. 
Um, and you treat the you treat failure as an a priori question, as in that thing was always destined to fail, and you don't you don't examine the um, the actual empirical process of how they failed. Where where were the moments where things could have gone differently, and what would have been necessary for them to? to go differently. So there is a lot to be learned from failure. But I guess the other possibility is once once we have the humility to, once we stop blaming one another and we have to humility to accept that, yes, the things that we believed in, the things that we thought, um, the horses that we backed uh, have also failed to reach the finishing line then that brings back the possibility of well let's why don't we try playing with a bigger deck maybe maybe you can let those things instead of assuming that those things that you don't agree with are necessarily enemies that need to be shot down at the first uh, opportunity just you know let them let them go see what they're doing Ask yourself, what other opportunities are they creating? Like, what is it possible to do on the back of that? What, what is it possible to do on top of that? There is, I ended up not using this um, in, in the book, but I've, I've used it in a, in a text that hasn't been translated into English. And it's a story I love about um, Miles Davis and when Dave Holland moved to, to New York to start playing with, with Miles Davis. And as tended to be the case with Miles Davis, he had no time to rehearse. He was given, you know, a time and a, and a place and a club to, to be. No one said hi to him. He just got up on stage and everyone started playing and he went after it. And afterwards he asked Miles, so what did you think? And the answer was, play what's not there. And that is actually a really good um, encapsulation of the idea of thinking in ecological terms. It's like, instead of looking at the things that exist and assuming these are all my enemies, these are all vying with me for the, the direction of the masses, ask yourself, what's not there? Like, what would make these things that are happening something else, something that I would be more comfortable with and that I think would be more uh, productive politically. You, you have a sentence say, where you say, like, uh, nobody is radical intransitively, right, which I really liked. And I, I was just wondering, like, whether there's a, a you know, whether, whether this is a, a circle that can be squared or whether you just have to kind of, you know, abide in that tension. Yeah, there's there's no there's no way you can get out of that tension, and whoever thinks they're getting out of that tension are just leaving it to other people in in the movement to take up the slack. Like if you if you think you can, so the two the two where I got um, uh, where I got lost before was you know the. The choice is, would be on the one hand, uh, the pragmatism that leaves things as they are, and on the other hand, the um, the expression of a, a principle of uh, or a radical position that also leaves things where they are. Because what you have done is you've just um, you've just taken a position. But that position was a position that had no no hold on the situation. There was it had no support. Um, it didn't really. It couldn't really do anything to change that position. So you've also you've also left the situation unchanged. The point is precisely, and this is something you can only do experimentally, which is why there's no way you can ever leave that tension. The point is always trying to find, well, what is the thing that we can do here that will work, but will also be 
a stepping stone towards something else. So one one point that I come back to uh, a few times, especially in the last chapter, is you're always acting within constraints. And if you if you act as if you weren't acting within constraints, you're probably not changing anything. You're just saying, well, this is what I believe. Yes, okay, but you know, no one no one supported you, no one followed you. That didn't actually change anything. So if you want to act, you're always acting within constraints. The difference between uh, this uh, completely spineless uh, pragmatism without any principles that is usually what we criticize when we criticize the idea of um, pragmatism is it's acting within constraints, but it's not doing anything to change the constraints within which you're acting. The, what is a radical action is, is not an action that ignores the existing constraints, but one that acts within those constraints in order to change those constraints and make more stuff, more and, and bigger and better stuff possible in, in the future. I think one, one thing that I hadn't really, that didn't really occur to me at the time when I was, um, when I was writing the book, but I think it's actually a really inspiring example of that is the work that people like, um, Ruth Gilmore James and, uh, Angela Davis do in the U S around, uh, abolitionism. Because on the one hand, and, and ab prison abolitionism is a, is a brilliant example, because on the one hand, you're stating a principle that to 99.9% .9 of people will sound completely out there. What you mean? Abolish prisons tomorrow. How? How is that possible? Uh, but then the way, they, the way they turn that around is say, well, okay, it's impossible to do it tomorrow. Fine. So what are all the things we would need to do in order to make that possible in, in the future? So you state this really radical position, but then that is um, the starting point from which you can actually discuss a number of reforms and at the institutional level, but also a number of uh, uh, organizing interventions at the community level, etc., that are seen as contributing to creating the conditions within which, at some point in the future, abolishing prisons will will be possible. And that, for me, is you know, if you if you thought that prison abolitionism was about abolishing prisons tomorrow or bust, then you would be forced to describe Angela Davis and Ruth Gilmer James as reformists, um, which, you know, I wouldn't recommend anyone uh, do. <laughs> um, but I think what they're doing is being radical precisely in this way, being, being radical in the transitive sense, i.e. that trying to find within given constraints, within the given, uh, the present conditions, the work that can create the conditions for what they hold from the start as being their principle. The, the end game is this, this is the principle, and we're not letting go of this principle, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but we're also, we're also not just stating the principle, we're changing things in order to make in order to create the world in which that principle is going to be possible. Yeah, one of the one of the things I like in 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 the book is your basically the the argument that you know it, it, you know if you ever in a political situation say there should be X, then actually the question you're asking is what do we need to do to make X possible? Um, which I think is a really good way actually to think about mm. it. And I suppose the counterpart to, to to lots of the thinking in the book is is to say, well, we're, we're talking about organization on our side, but it's worth saying that of course. You know, forms of organization on the part of, say, the state and capital have also undergone like really extensive and really radical changes over the course, well, not only over the course of the past century, but also over the course of the past couple of decades, um, you know, with the rise of, of you know, the, these kind of massive technological changes. Um, and so, so in that sense, I suppose, you know, and 
you know, we've also been talking very abstractly. And so with these things, you know, in mind, I want to kind of push you a bit to say, uh, you know, the, the classic Leninist question, um, what is to be done? Uh, and in a UK context, perhaps specifically, you know, I think this cycle of struggle to which the book is responding is closed. I think I think that's the cycle has has reached its kind of natural terminus, which means that probably another one is more or less beginning, right? I think that's how these things work. Um, you know, it, this is a cycle of struggle that started on the streets and then reached its limitations there and hit on a kind of electoral expression attempted to do all sorts of things with that, attempted to kind of you know, expand and recompose the movement, attempted to do, you know, but, but, but reached its limit point. Um, you know, one of the reasons I think this book is really important for, for, for Britain right now, um, for, for the left in Britain, is like there are lots of people casting around to figure out like what, what to do, what the, the one thing is to do. Um, uh, uh, and I don't think you're going to give me the, the one weird trick to destroy capitalism. Um, <laughs> but, but perhaps I can invite you to speculate I I a bit. <laughs> perhaps I can invite you to speculate a bit about uh, what is to be done. Ooh, uh, that's a tough one. Um, one of the things, one of the advantages, I think, uh, that this moment has over the that other moment of the mid uh, 2000s when the anti-globalization movement died is that there's a lot more infrastructure left now. There's stuff like uh, Navarra and uh, The World Transformed and uh, lots of other things that will continue to to exist and will be important as um, poles of recomposition for whatever comes next. And I think there's a lot more people left around, which means that if you're, if you're right, that there's a new cycle coming up soon, and let's absolutely hope that that is the case because we've, we've all, we've, We've already wasted, you know, if we had, if according to um, the IPCC, we had 10 years to drastically reduce emissions, we've already pissed away the first two, maybe three years of, of that. So we better have a new cycle starting soon, which means then that one of the first things to do is for the people who are left over from the previous cycle to be prepared for for that and prepared both in in the sense of having structures that can um, receive a, an influx of of new people a, a new generation of activists but also having that openness and uh, humility and generosity that we were talking about just now of like not expecting that people will already arrive uh, bearing the hard-earned lessons that people um, discovered in the last decade. Having the um, openness to um, work with whatever people will be bringing and work from there and work on top of that rather than just um, you know, rejecting it or, or denying it. Um, as to what form that will take, I think definitely the, we're overdue a return to the streets um, on, on different terms. Um, and, but I think we're also overdue a, a um, uh, developing new tactics that are capable of hitting um, capital and the state where it hurts. Because one of the things that I think we realized in the last decade was that under new liberalism, the political system has become very used to operating with low legitimacy. So it can actually withstand sustained mass protests for a while. 
especially in the absence of any uh, organized institutional alternative that can fight over control of the state apparatus. And we've, we've seen this. Uh, this happened in, in the US and the UK, obviously, but we've seen it in even more dramatic ways in Brazil after 2013. And the Arab Spring is obviously the, the horror story in, in that case. So yeah, I, I don't know if I have an answer uh, for that, but I think um, the, the things I would say for now would be A, being prepared for whatever comes and being prepared to be uh, to both have uh, structures in place to receive whatever comes, but also to be receptive to whatever comes and start thinking seriously and deeply about other tactics beyond street mobilizations that can use the energy that that is gathered by um, mass demonstrations on the streets to actually hit capital in the state where it hurts the most. And finally, also maybe having a few um, pokers in the fire in terms of uh, institutional institutional interlocutors and, and uh, alternatives that could act as mediators uh, in, in case a new cycle emerges. Because I, I just, sadly, I don't believe that the next cycle or the cycle after that, if we're lucky enough to see two more, will be the last ones. Uh, and that we could just imagine that we could do away with all mediation and, you know, after the next cycle, we'll win. Sadly, I don't believe that. Sadly, I believe that um, we will need mediators. And at the same time, I don't believe that having mediators necessarily means the death of the movement, necessarily means uh, that it um, betrays its, its original uh, momentum. I, I think it's perfectly possible if you have the right mediators that things go uh, a different way. So yeah, for the time being, maybe that's that's what is to be done for now. <laughs> yeah, that's a good place for us to leave it. Rodrigo, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. I had a great time. And uh, thank you very much. For and that's it. My thanks to Rodrigo Nunes for a brilliant and insightful conversation. It's really we barely touched on half of what's in the book if you're involved in political organizing of any kind i really recommend picking it up i think especially here in the uk when the left drops its current cycle of wounded attachments some of the ideas in this book will really be essential so get a jump start neither vertical nor horizontal is out from verso right now this has been navara fm here on resonance 104.4 fm i have been and i will continue to be james butler stay locked on i will see you next week. Bye-bye. This broadcast, like all the cornucopia of content you can get at Navarra Media, is only possible through the small donations of hundreds of people like you. Join them. Go to navarra.media support.